to cast oneself into the role of a particularly humanitarian, tolerant country is risky because one cuts oneself off from opportunities of self-criticism and self-growth. It's always risky to kind of come to the conclusion that everything is fine the way it is. First of all, it isn't, it never is. And secondly, it's not a good position from which to learn. And that, that's where the, the Nordic countries have a risk. They have a, they have a, a, a kind of a, a, a risk for complacency. That was the voice of Wolf Kemsteiner, who is a professor at Aarhus University. And he was talking about how specific narratives can be used to bring out certain interests, be it the interests of a group or a fund or even a nation. There's quite an interesting difference in what and how we choose to remember. Do we tend toward regional, national or maybe even local narratives? Or are we just lazy and drift towards historical narratives that have been repeated a million times by people we already listen to? Or do we challenge these and listen to the historical narratives that we don't normally listen to? My name is Bibeke Sennea-Rønnedal, and as of December 2020, I've spent the last four months working in the Nordics Info office. I'm a history student and I've always been interested in the way we remember the past, which led me and the editor of Nordics Info to ask two of our colleagues here at Aarhus University some questions. We are joined today by Wolf Kansteiner and Michael Frausing, who are both ideally placed to help us with this subject. Welcome everyone to this Nordics Info podcast. My name is Nicola Whitcomb and I am editor of Nordics Info, which is a research dissemination website based at Aarhus University in Denmark and part of the Nordic University Research Hub, Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World. This is the first of two podcasts and is called Shaping the Nordic Past, Fact, Fiction or Politics. It's about how people have shaped the past through telling different stories and narratives. In other words, how people have used memory culture in different ways and the politics of this with examples from the Nordics. Thank you very much for joining us and for wanting to, to be a part of this. So if you could both please introduce yourselves briefly. Wolf, maybe we should start with you. Yes. Um, I'm by training a, a cultural intellectual historian. Uh, I do memory studies. So I, I look uh, especially at the field, at the developing field of memory studies, the theories, the methods, the methodology uh, we use, how do we understand uh, the use of the past in different settings and different societies. Um, empirically, Many of my examples I work with are linked to different types of media, television I've done empirically, I've worked with museums. Um, and often I'm also interested in questions of Holocaust remembrance. And in addition to that, I'm a historical theorist, trying to understand what the historical profession, a profession does, what historians do, and how historical texts, professional historical texts function. 
And my name is uh, Michael Frausing. I hold a PhD in history and heritage studies. I'm uh, employed at the Danish Research Center on Urban History. And my main research interest has been cultural heritage and uh, especially the commercial uses of cultural heritage, like country houses uh, and manors, such as uh, tourism and events and hospitality uh, uh, and such, and how this contributes to uh, the conservation efforts, but also our understanding of history in society. I am very glad that I got to talk to you two. You seem like the perfect experts on this subject. Uh, Wolf, you have taught uh, the uses of history for several years. Could you give us a brief overview of what it means and why it is important? The use of history, that is the use of the past, I would say, because there's a difference between history in an academic sense and the way that groups, collectives, and they give small groups like families, it can be institutions, it can be companies, it can be the state, different actors, how they use the past. The past is a very important resource. It's actually, people have to have a sense of the past. Uh, they have to have a sense of identity. They have a sense of mission. And that's created by a way of, of reaching into the past, creating narratives, creating trajectories, creating also goals uh, for the future. So in that sense, the use of past, the creation of collective memories is absolutely essential to our, our beings as, as, as cultural beings. Um, so in that, sense, in that sense, it's an absolutely essential part of, of our societies. And I think the difference is it can be done uh, better and worse. It can be good for our uh, societies, uh, for our groups. It can be problematic for our groups or problematic for other groups. So, so memory and our relationship to the past is a very important field of social, cultural, political agency and a sense of responsibility, a sense of where do we want to go? Where are we coming from? How do we make this place a better place? is extremely important uh, in our society. And I think uh, one of the reasons why memory studies has become so successful is thriving in recent years is that recognition that uh, memory is uh, a, a, a resource and a necessity for societies and groups to thrive. So just to follow up on that, has it become more popular, more... Uh maybe not more relevant, but is it something that we've begun to, to focus more on recently? The, a relationship to the past has always been important for society, so historically. There's always been a sense of, of where are we coming from. Uh, but I think what has changed drastically in the last, I would say, 20 years, 30 years, is a, a conscious recognition how important that is, a conscious recognition that uh, the question of our memories, the question of our relationship to the past is a field that contains lots of opportunities and a lot of uh, ethical challenges and responsibilities. And we have a responsibility to, to position ourselves in this field. So I think many societies, especially affluent societies, are using relationships to the past commercially and non-commercially, to, to, to realize their goals. You, you can have a, fact, a factually problematic memory that nevertheless um, has, reflects good values. And you can have a factually accurate 
relationship to the past in that sense that you have historical facts under control and you're creating with those accurate facts a highly problematic, ethically problematic memory culture. So, so in that sense, facts are not that important. If I just may add to what uh, Wolf was saying, this is probably one of the big differences between academic history and the uses of history and also a source of a lot of misunderstanding. And it's a lot of uh, how does this past work? What does it do to society? Which are sort of the, the paramount questions that we're, that we're dealing with. Historians actually are not in agreement what history is. So, so in that sense, we don't really know what history is. They are, at the moment, those people who have studied academic history, they, they have advanced different theories about it, uh, if it's about facticity, if it's about arguments, or if it's about stories. Those are different perspectives, and there is no consensus. So, so in that sense, even when we look at history, we can look at academic history as a memory culture. And we can even look at academic history as a field where ethics and politics are extremely important and where facts only reach so far. The larger concepts, the larger trajectories of our academic histories cannot be proven factually. That's what most experts think. So we can't factually prove, for example, that we should think about, let's say, the 1950s and 60s, 70s as the Cold War. These abstract and very important concepts do not have, in that sense, factual integrity. They have maybe argumentative integrity. They have maybe aesthetic appeal. But their, their factual status is, is, is highly uh, con contended. So in that sense, even history is perhaps only, even academic history is perhaps only a very specific and very strange uh, field of memory. You know, that, that could be the case. If you went to dance Volkerparty, for example, or uh, Nordism groups in the Nordics, and you said your collective memory is wrong uh, 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 because there is no fact, um, that argument is not going to work. It works in an academic environment. It probably works in a way that you can establish museums so they're sort of interactive. But in the real world, how does this function? Uh, I think uh, you, you, of course, identified an extremely important question. One of our political challenges, and it might very well be one of the questions that uh, is decisive for the future of our democracies in the West, is how do we deal with reactionary politics? This is a, a very, very legitimate question. And memory is extremely important in that, in that mix because many of the politically right-wing reactionary uh, movements um, have very specific memory politics. They have a sense of self, a very clear sense of self. Um, I think for, for myself, having puzzled with that question over the last years, one point of departure is, again, for me, the test is the question of violence. When people start supporting, advocating for violence, I'm out. I am no longer interested in dialogue. I would then be interested in law enforcement. But people have a right to embrace highly national, perhaps nationalistic memories. That's, in a democracy, that's the privileges we have. I think it's, it's a, as a point of departure and as a point to open and enter into a dialogue, however 
difficult that is, that has to be on the, clearly acknowledged. I, I don't agree with your, your memories. I don't agree with your values, but I agree with your right to express those values and I will fight for your right to express those values and those memories in a democratic society. I think that's, that's, my, point, that's my point of departure. And then, and then it's part of a political process and then it's part of a political competition. And then it's a question of, of connecting to, to voters. You know, the right-wing movements are so successful because they have a point. And one of the points that they are very nicely supporting by way of their own memory culture is, and by way of their performance, is that many of our transnational institutions lack democratic legitimacy. The EU, the UN, that is a serious problem. And the right-wingers, Ah, have democratic legitimacy. So, so in that sense, they are pointing towards a serious problem in our, in our transnational memory culture and our transnational political sphere. The EU might have a beautiful uh, design for memory, the kind of cosmopolitan memory that, 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 that looks as our, at our past failures, you know, as, as it f is, for example, in, uh, displayed in the Brussels Museum. But that does not make the EU a functioning democratic institution. That's uh, another challenge for museum professionals also to, to always consider how much you want to, to have that certain political agenda. Transnational history has been very difficult to bring forth in uh, the museum world because it's, it's, it's not uh, rooted in, in uh, the tradition of the museum. So I think that there's a, there's a big job for museums and museums professionals to, to sort of find ways to, to represent transnational history, transnational agendas. I think there's, there's some good examples for, for institutions also locally that they try to, to, to um, support transnational interpretations. Uh, I would say Moscow Museum, for example, in their, in their Viking exhibit, they, they try to kind of use Viking history as a, as a kind of precursor to the European Union, <laughs> where, they, where they see, you know, they, they, they cast Vikings in the role of, of traders, right? And, right. Uh, and uh, they traveling across Europe and, and bringing things home. Uh, there has been a discussion now in many European countries, including in Germany, that um, the, the left, the kind of professional liberals have abandoned the field of national memories to the right wing. And there might be some truth to that, right? Uh, because, and, and again, uh, as we should never forget, the, the national theaters of politics are at the moment those theaters that work democratically. You know, they, at least some of them work democratically quite well. Therefore, these theaters are extremely important. And, and whoever wants to do successful memory politics has to succeed in that theater of political action. Um, so we, we can't discount it. So I, 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 I think, you know, let's rethink the nation. You know, there have been there are plenty of examples, people before us who had progressive ideas about where the notion goes or where it shouldn't go. And one can also be self-critical with regard on, on a national plane. Um, so I've, I think um, there are plenty of opportunities for us to learn. Uh, we also have a very good example in uh, the Nordic history of, of, of the Baltic Sea. It usually originates within uh, a German context. It's a 
a very good idea because it's it's transnational. It it expands uh, towards uh, a lot of uh, European countries. It's uh, a network based. Uh, it's a positive story in in German history. But the Hansestadt, Lübeck, and, and Hamburg and the others, it's not always a positive story in Danish or Swedish history. These are opponents in in trade and in war and and, and such. So so sometimes you sort of clash with these uh, national stories in, in, in Denmark and Sweden and the Baltic countries like uh, Estonia and Lithuania and uh, uh, Latvia and such, where, where, where these uh, Hansestadt and these, this uh, German influence is, 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 is traditionally seen as uh, uh, problematic. I think the Baltic uh, Sea Place it has great potential as a site of memory. And it also has that from a more modern perspective because it cuts across the old Cold War divide and it cuts uh, across countries of, of affluence and less affluence. And, and those, that diversity I, I find very intriguing because it allows for multi-perspectivity, for looking at the same problem from a, from a range of different perspectives. If we could now bring the discussion back round to the Nordics, how are the Nordic countries, or perhaps just Denmark, positioned in all of this? I'm not an expert in Scandinavian memory culture yet, but I have seen my share of it. So I can, I once want, I want to emphasize that they have things in common and they're different. One of the things they have in common in Nordic countries is when it comes to their identity, when it comes to their collective memory, they have in common what uh, my colleague Mass Staubiak has called a cosmopolitan nationalism. So they have in common a sense that life is particularly good in Scandinavia, that Scandinavia is really good at protecting human rights, but that's not a self-reflexive, self-critical memory. So from that, pers- from that perspective of having attained so many things already, which might be factually accurate, that's not a good perspective to be self-critical, identify mistakes being made and rectify them. Let me give you one example for that that already uh, underlines differences, for example, between Denmark and Sweden. The word ghetto is a site of memory. It's memory in, in, a, in a nutshell. So the term ghetto is not innocent. So if in Danish society, for example, the word ghetto listen is thrown around all the time, you, we, you are, the society is basically using racist terminology, deeply racist terminology. And so, so now the question as a memory expert is, is not that simple, but the question should be raised. Is this a self-fulfilling prophecy that is, by using a term like ghetto listing, at least once a year when the new uh, lists are created, are we actually creating self-fulfilling prophecies of inequality and marginalization? Or is this the right, honest memory strategy because it calls a spade a spade? I would say the first rather than the second. I think it's a very problematic use uh, of memory. I think it is we're running the risk of having a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so these are some of the questions where some of the things that can be changed. And, and again, I want to, despite the fact that Swedish society has similar problems with immigration and migration than, than Danish society, and that's linked to the fact that all of these Scandinavian societies are, are highly nationalistic, and I would say highly xenophobic. Um, nevertheless, 
you wouldn't find the use of the word ghetto in Swedish society, right? And so, so these, these differences and these questions are, are imported, they are loaded, and they're not straightforward. But talking about them, trying to adjust them, trying to come up with more creative, more inclusive ways of using history is extremely important. What I find interesting about the word uh, ghetto listen, um, which uh, just to put, put it briefly is a list of specific areas where the percentage of uh, ethnic minorities is above a certain level. Um, and so has become a rather famous term in, in Denmark, um, is that it has been appropriated by the people that are working against the ghetto law as well, in a similar way that you could say um, swear words have been appropriated by women and uh, 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 black people th through, through the ages. Um, so I would probably push you on that point, Wolf, that you... That you you would say that it's xenophobic and a continuation of discrimination in the use of that word when actually it's been uh, it's a short term for a very complicated subject that you can't sort of put into one uh, term or sentence and and it's easy for the opposition to therefore fight against it by just simply using ghetto list and Yes, it's absolutely important, but the question is who's speaking? Uh, who's speaking, who's using the term in what ways? And if people, I, I think we have to be aware of power, uh, power and memory. And if people of lesser power use terms, including terms that they turn around and, and direct in new ways and use as political tools, Fantastic. That's their decision. That's a democratic decision. And that might or might not serve their purposes, actually. Uh, the jury is still out on that. They might use it for these purposes, that, but they, it might actually not serve their interest. They might actually re reify differences and hierarchies that they want to they, they want to combat. So, so even that one, even that use, despite the fact that I have actually no problems, uh, groups are entitled to, to use the memory policies that they want to within the limits of the law. Um, and as long as they don't uh, incite to violence, that's my, hard, uh, that's my hard limit to any memory politics. Memory politics, for me, tolerance stops when anybody is, is invoking uh, the right to use violence. Then, then, then uh, that has to be curbed. Beyond those goals, the use, freedom of expression and choosing one's discursive strategy freely is, of course, the right of every person and every group. But, and this is a very important but, is it in the interest, has it ever been in the interest of the state that wants to allegedly foster integration to use the term ghetto? And here I would say decisively, no, it's never been in the interest of the state to do that because there it's always been a tool of discrimination and irresponsible use of power. So who is speaking to whom in what context is extremely important and who has power and who does not have power. And people in power have to be more self-reflexive and self-critical about their use of memory culture. When speaking of who has less and more power and how it can be used as political tools, how do the Nordic countries position themselves in that? You know, the facts of the high standard of living, the fact perhaps 
although I'm not so sure that's a fact, of collective happiness. All these kinds of myths and stories we are, we are, uh, in, we are creating about uh, the Nordic countries, that make the Nordic countries very prone to not go the extra mile and not use memory as, as an opportunity for self-critical growth. That's how I would phrase it. If you think you're very tolerant, you're blind for racism. Yeah. If you think you've already accomplished uh, gender equality, you don't see uh, the, the gender, gendered, genderedness and gender inequality in your society. It's, it's not, it might be historical fact. It's not good memory politics. And that will be the final very interesting word uh, from our first podcast, Shaping a Nordic Past, Fact, Fiction or Politics. Please join us for the second podcast, which looks further at some of these issues and focuses more on the practicalities and money-making opportunities of shaping a Nordic past. And I will leave it to Vipika to sum up. So memory is a difficult field to navigate through, but it also seems important for society to remember where we come from. I think the point is that, on the one side, of course, historians need to use historical sources to try and find out what actually happened. But as historians, whether they're amateurs, academics, or just people watching TV, where we are all memory makers, we should be conscious of why we're interested in certain periods of time, certain stories, certain people. You've been listening to a Nordics Info podcast. Many thanks go to the participants, Wolf and Michael, to our very own research hub, Reimagining Norm in an Evolving World, and to our funders, Norfolk. If you would like to find out more, please visit Nordics Info.